Hello and welcome to the Socialist World Podcast from the Committee for a Workers International, putting forward a Marxist analysis and revolutionary socialist program to harm the struggle against capitalism. Welcome to this Socialist World Podcast from the Committee for a Workers International, the CWI. My name is Sean Fig from the CWI's International Secretariat. In this podcast, we will be discussing our analysis of the world situation, which means a discussion about the crisis of world capitalism, which is manifesting in wars, conflicts, heightened tensions between the capitalist world powers, and the threat, therefore, of yet more wars and conflicts against the background of economic stagnation and crises, and in its wake, political instability on every continent to one degree or another. Of course, that is just one side of the coin, the negative side. On the other side is the response from the working class, from the youth, from the poor masses around the world in uprisings, mass movements, strike waves, and an increased searching for the forms of organisation and the political ideas necessary to challenge capitalism. To discuss the world situation, I'm joined by Tony Sornois, Secretary of the CWI, But before we get into it and begin the discussion, I just need to say one more word about the background to the analysis that we'll be presenting. That is to say that it's the outcome of discussions and deliberations at a five-day meeting of the CWI's International Executive Committee, our IEC, which took place in January. At this meeting were comrades from each of the 14 countries where the CWI is organised, That includes the United States, Chile, Ireland, Germany, Nigeria, South Africa, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, others that I've not got time to mention. Now, it won't surprise listeners to hear that central to the discussions, even dominating the discussions, we could say, was the brutal war of state terror being waged by the Israeli state against the Palestinians in Gaza and in reality, the West Bank as well. Over the past few days, a major escalation in US bombing of the region has taken place with strikes on Iraq and Syria. So Tony, let's start there. What's our analysis of the current phase of the crisis and war in the Middle East? Well, the current phase, Sean, and good afternoon to everybody and our listeners, is obviously a horrific situation which is in the process still of unfolding and developing. This is not just a repetition of previous attacks against the Palestinian peoples. This has been elevated by the Netanyahu regime and it's a brutal uh, assault against all of the rights of the Palestinian peoples. Uh, Netanyahu himself has had this objective to launch an offensive for quite a period. At the United Nations General Assembly in September of last year, he held aloft a map, a regional map, uh, reconfigurating the whole area of which the Palestinians, both in Gaza and the West Bank, were simply obliterated. That was his objective. The terrible attacks that took place by Hamas on October the 7th then gave him the excuse to launch this uh, barbaric and, and brutal onslaught against the Palestinian uh, peoples. Now, the situation has, of course, escalated uh, one phase after another. And now we see it beginning to extend into a more regional conflict, which is obviously a major threat uh, to the peoples of the Arab world, 
a major threat to uh, uh, everybody living in that uh, particular area. And it will have devastating effects if it develops further in terms of the world economy, in terms of geopolitical relations, in terms of the whole world situation that we're facing at this particular conjuncture. And it certainly seems, especially over the last few days, that that's a real danger. The escalation in the bombing campaign and the number of different countries and regional powers, the different proxies that are involved. Well, definitely, Sean, because it's, uh, it has accelerated. I mean, even since we met at the uh, IEC meeting uh, only a, a few weeks ago, there's been a dramatic turn in the situation. The crisis involving the uh, Houthi rebels uh, in the Yemen has uh, worsened uh, substantially. They've carried out and positioned themselves as the defenders of the Gazan uh, people. And, of course, they've struck out against uh, Western interests, particularly on shipping uh, in the Red Sea. And then we've seen the counter-offensive launched by U.S. imperialism, which has dramatically escalated uh, the situation still further. So the prospect of a further conflict, there's been an incremental increase of, uh, of uh, firepower on the border with Lebanon as well, uh, involving uh, Hezbollah. Uh, there's been over 10,000 projectiles fired each way. I mean, uh, in reality, there is a low intensity war. In reality, it's already taking place. We should stress here, US imperialism, Biden, they don't want to escalate this uh, conflict if they could possibly avoid it. The Iranian regime probably does not want uh, uh, a direct uh, all-out confrontation with US imperialism of a military character at this stage. But things are not necessarily in the control of these political leaders. War has its own dynamic and its whole whole logic. The complexity of the different alignment of different organisations it makes the accidental escalation of this into a wider conflict something that's lodged in a situation. I mean, many of our listeners may be hearing about some of the Iranian-backed militias, especially in Syria and Iraq for the first time. But these have been developments that have been taking place uh, over uh, a number of, uh, of years. But I'll just take you back to something you said in opening just now, is that there's been wars between Gaza or between Hamas and the Israeli state before but that this one is not a mere repetition of the previous waves of conflict. And that has everything to do with the character of the government and the regime in Israel itself at this stage. Most definitely, because, I mean, it's crucial. The character of the Israeli regime is critical to understand that, uh, to to grasp what is taking place and what is uh, likely to unfold in the course of the next weeks and months. And it's a horror without end as far as the Palestinian people is concerned. Now, Netanyahu came into power, but had to cobble together a coalition in order to secure a majority for his government. And in that coalition, he formed uh, blocks with extreme right-wing Israeli nationalist uh, forces, some of which had a fascistic uh, element to them uh, as well. And that's really been determining the the broad policy of uh, the government. Now, we should remember that uh, a few months and and weeks before the war broke out after the Hamas attacks on October the 7th, Netanyahu was threatened with overthrow. That's right. The mass movement in the first half of 2023, the so-called pro-democracy movement. But nevertheless imprisoned in his right-wing government, then his agenda is also being driven by the inclusion in the government of these extreme far-right forces of a fascistic character. And you're seeing that reflected in the methods that is being deployed by the Israeli regime in terms of the war itself. Now, to underline the point, 
his map that he waved around at the September General Assembly of the United Nations illustrated a crucial point. Their objective here is what? It's not just to pound uh, the Palestinian people. The objective is to try and drive out the Palestinian people uh, in reality from the Gaza and they've updated the tax now in relation to the West Bank. What we're dealing here with is a policy, a systematic policy to try and obliterate uh, the Palestinian uh, nation, its culture, its whole uh, existence in reality. Now, whether he's successful in doing that is another question. But nevertheless, this is the road that they are got, trying to go down at this particular conjuncture. How long Netanyahu lasts is also an open question. They have major splits and divisions within the government between the ruling, different wings of the ruling class as well, and there's opposition to, uh, to Netanyahu in the Israeli population, substantial opposition, down to a minority support very clearly in the opinion polls. And it's possible the Netanyahu government will uh, collapse or disintegrate at a certain stage. Won't necessarily mean the end of the war. And you mentioned the West Bank there, because that's an important element in understanding the character of the Israeli regime. It's the question of the settlers uh, in the West Bank. And the settlers, well, that's a critical issue in relation to the character of the government as well. They've encouraged in the whole period of this government uh, the re-deployment, uh, uh, the seizure of land by a new wave of settlers in relation to the West Bank. They're encouraged to be armed by the government itself, and they carried out armed attacks against the Palestinian people, taking uh, even more land uh, from them in a vicious uh, uh, wave of repression, which has hit the West Bank. Over 400 dead incursions, uh, slaughter taking place and vicious, absolutely vicious uh, repression carried out by the uh, IDF against the uh, population. And the West Bank, and this is a critical factor, according to reports that are now emerging, is on the brink of itself experiencing a massive social explosion. So we see utter uh, turmoil uh, existing as a consequence of the war that's now being raged. Mm. And I think that links to the fears of the ruling classes across the region. The longer the war rumbles on, as long as the brutality of the Israeli state continues, the social explosions are possible across the board. I think we should stress at this point, though, one point. This war in the Gaza illustrates a critical factor. This is a, a, the, the carnage we're seeing unfold there is a reflection of the dystopian nature of capitalism on a world scale in this era. This is what we are now in, and it's reflected in a whole series of other conflicts as well. And there'd be no solution uh, to this uh, conflict uh, on the basis of capitalism uh, uh, continuing. The, the need for a socialist confederation of the area to defend all of the legitimate democratic national aspirations and rights of the Palestinian peoples, of the whole of the Arab population and of the Israeli uh, working people uh, as well, is critical. But it will only be possible with a mass movement to break with uh, capitalism. Capitalism will not resolve this particular conflict. Now we'll zoom out a little bit now. The war in Gaza has been fuel on the fire of the deeply polarised world situation in all the different countries uh, and between and across the major world capitalist powers. But of course, as we've pointed out in our discussions at the IEC, Israel is and remains a crucial ally of Western imperialism and the US in particular. But of course, the US itself, if we look at the domestic situation there, uh, is, is in a deeply polarized situation as well, with an election coming up in November, looking like a rematch between, so-called rematch between Biden and Trump. What are the effects of the, uh, of the war in the Middle East 
on the US domestic situation? Well, it's, it's inevitably, Sean, going to have a, a, a dramatic impact, as it already is. In US society is massively polarised uh, along class lines, uh, on, on the whole political division which exists. And, of course, it's in the run-up now to the election campaign, which uh, is going to be an even more polarised uh, situation. The effect of Gaza, Biden has uh, driven home, really, uh, despite a few crocodile tears being uh, shed and a fear of the conflict spreading into a regional uh, position, but nevertheless he's broadly uh, stood by uh, the Israeli regime and what it has uh, done. That's had an impact in relation to a layer of his supporters in relation to the US. Now, there's a battle going on, of course. It looks like Trump will secure the, uh, the Republican nomination. The ruling class are terrified of that development and will do everything in their power to try and stop uh, Trump because he's not in the interests of, uh, of, of US imperialism or the, or the majority of the US uh, capitalist uh, class himself. But the problem they have is Biden and the Democratic Party. Their, their standing in the polls is minimal. Uh, there is no confidence in the Biden administration or very little confidence in the Biden administration. It's become increasingly discredited, uh, partly as a result of his foreign policy, partly as a result of his uh, economic uh, domestic uh, policy uh, as well. And the situation's open. And the US ruling class are throwing everything they can against Trump, uh, threatening him with prison probably as a result of the whole series of legal cases that are being taken against him. But every time they attack him, including legally, it solidifies his support. And he is coming across, despite the fact he's a billionaire, he's from, uh, in that sense, from the ruling class himself. Nevertheless, when they attack him, it solidifies uh, his report and support and he presents himself as the outside man. He's not part of the establishment. If you listen to Trump, in that situation, it's far from certain, it's not determined, uh, the election is in November and a lot of water can flow under the bridge uh, before then. But it, it's quite a possibility that Trump will uh, again win uh, the election, particularly taking into account the election system in the US. And that is going to, if that happens, a whole new scenario opens up globally and in terms of the massive polarization and struggles that will erupt in the, the US as well. What you described about the effect on Trump's base uh, from the attacks from the other wing uh, or other wings of the ruling class speaks quite a lot to what the CWI has identified as this the phenomenon and the character of right wing uh, populism in this uh, in this area, which is a feature in a whole number of countries, including in Europe, Millet in Argentina, uh, and a number of other countries. So Trump, in that sense, is not a unique phenomenon. Um, but why why have we seen the the emergence of this right wing populism? I mean, it's true. He, he, you know, Trump has got his own particular features and characteristics, but he's not unique because you're having in a number of countries elected politicians or, or parties coming to power, not everywhere, but in a number of countries, uh, which are out of control of the capitalists. And they partly lost control of their political uh, uh, apparatus. It's reflected in the horrors in uh, Gaza with the Netanyahu government, which the Israeli ruling class don't want. And then you have this uh, Argentinian president, Millet, as you say, you know, who is known in Argentina as El Loco, uh, the madman, who, you know, is like Trump on steroids in, in terms of uh, uh, his, his approach. Now, why has this happened? It's a reflection 
of a cry of utter desperation for millions uh, around the world who are utterly polarized and in revolt in their outlook against the system as it stands. Uh, economic, in terms of the role of the elites, the discrediting of all of the, pol the traditional political parties and politicians is a global phenomenon which is present in all countries to one degree or another. Now the tragedy is, is that there has not been the emergence of new mass socialist workers parties uh, to, uh, in, in anywhere which have been able to intervene and channel, channel this anger into a really uh, progressive uh, alternative which can, uh, of a socialist character which can draw the working class behind its, uh, behind its banner. And therefore, nature abhors the vacuum. And into the vacuum as steps these right-wing populist uh, forces. Mm. And we'll come back to this question of, uh, of the new left parties yeah. uh, or their failure to emerge, question of trade union leaders uh, and the uh, question of struggle. But I think an important point to underline Certainly back in 2016, when Trump was first elected, amongst a certain section of the population, certain idea that this was a moment of madness. But the fact that Millet, and a, a new phenomenon on the world stage certainly, has now been elected, shows it's a process that's embedded in this era of capitalism. This, uh, the defeat of one candidate will not uh, remove the phenomenon of right-wing populism and the need uh, uh, for the working class to combat it and pose an alternative. Maybe we just move on to the question of another divisive and polarizing issue from the point of view of the US ruling class, which is, of course, a question of the, uh, the war in Ukraine. What's our analysis of the current stage of the conflict there? Well, it's another reflection of the impasse of capitalism in this era. I mean, uh, the whole way it developed, you know, with Putin's uh, invasion of, uh, the, of the Ukraine, uh, in a certain sense, politically driven in a similar way to Netanyahu, in a certain sense, in the sense that ideologically they didn't recognize the Ukrainian people uh, or the nation of Ukraine. They didn't want it. I mean, it's there, but I mean, they, they, you know, he, he thought uh, that he'd be very easily be able to intervene in the Ukraine, take it over, and abolish it as a, as a separate independent nation in reality. Now, that, of course, proved to be utterly utopian and wishful thinking on his his part. Now, having seen that intervention from the Russian uh, autocracy and the Russian uh, uh, corrupt uh, gangster form of capitalism headed by uh, Putin, the West stepped in and took that as a, having collaborated with Putin or, or befriended him in different uh, uh, different stages, they nevertheless stepped in, backed Ukraine as, as, as they sought to try and defend their interests and we have a similar uh, uh, position. I mean, it's really at an impasse, the war in the Ukraine. Neither side has got the upper hand. There's a certain war weariness in the West in the sense of sections like in the US are questioning and opposing continuing uh, financing and uh, militarily the Ukraine war itself. If they move in that direction, and there is pressure, they partly now delayed the issue of further funds going to the Ukraine from uh, uh, from the US. That's going to complicate the position enormously for uh, the Ukrainian regime. But it's really got stuck at the moment uh, the war, and uh, you know it's horrific consequences both for the Ukrainian workers and for the uh, for the Russian workers involved mm. in this uh, this this dead end conflict. I mean, one point on the domestic situation in, in Russia uh, that we drew out uh, at the IEC discussions 
was although there hasn't been an immediate hasn't been an immediate challenge to Putin, that the enormous pressure this is putting on his regime, the anger it's stoking within the Russian masses and working class uh, as well, laying the ground for the Putin regime's downfall at a certain point. There are elections coming up in March in Russia. What's the shelf life of the Putin regime? It was obviously opposition developing to uh, Putin's regime inside Russia. However, the issue of Russian nationalism has been stoked and it has a, has a base. Um, it doesn't appear like the opposition to the war is massive at this stage. The majority are probably still support, are supporting uh, the war from the Russian uh, uh, side. And it's despite the fact there's elections, and they've allowed this opposition candidate to stand, who's, who's described the war, I think, as a mistake, a mistaken policy, uh, that would allow the, the Putin regime then to present themselves as being democratic. Look, we've allowed an opposition candidate, and they'll act as a certain channel for a, a bit of opposition uh, electorally. Putin would obviously, without doubt, formally win the election, how long the regime staggers on for is, a, 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 is an imponderable question at this stage. It could be could be sooner. It could drag on a little bit further. It depends on how things develop in the economy, uh, globally, and in terms of Russia. Uh, and there's many other factors involved in it. Um, but at some point, some some uh, crisis will develop in relation to the Putin regime. Well, in fact, let's let's go there because. Um... In terms of the other factors that can determine not just the outcome uh, of the Ukraine war, war in Gaza and the, the Middle East as well, is of course the important background to these two major regional conflicts that have developed, um, which is the question of the relative position of US imperialism, especially with regards to China, which in the analysis that the CWI has developed is one of the crucial pivots of developments in the world capitalist system. That's, I mean, that's in many respects is the defining issue of the era in terms of the decline of US imperialism. Now, US imperialism, we have to emphasize, is still the most powerful, strongest imperial power on the, on the, on the planet. And they've tried to demonstrate that with the sending of the air force carriers, etc. Absolutely. The, the attacks they've taken out recently uh, against Yemen. And by the way, you should remember, in the Middle East in general, they have 57,000 troops uh, despite their need. It's a major power, I'm not saying it's the end of US imperialism, but it's been in a decline. And of course, China has been uh, on, on the ascendancy. And that has reconfigured the whole of uh, world relations. And it's recon been reconfigured also by further factors. The, it's allowed the middle block, a so-called middle block of countries like Brazil, like India, who have a certain independence and a certain uh, economic uh, power themselves to assert themselves more internationally. And you see that with the development of uh, a, a different regional trade blocks, different regional alliances are emerging in a whole new and total reconfiguration of international relations is in the process of taking place. The Middle East will never be the same again after this conflict. Exactly how it develops is uncertain. It's scandalous the way the press do not report the horrors of what's taken place in Africa, the number of wars. And I mean, just to underline the point of what's taken place, the United Nations last year produced a report and they estimated 25% of the world's population are currently living in war zones or zones of major conflict, civil wars and, and uh, national conflicts and uh, wars. And that's a phenomenal uh, development if you think about it. 
Africa had been in the centre of that, and it's just obliterated from the international media coverage in terms of the horrors that have taken place in the last few years in Ethiopia, Sudan, and elsewhere. Uh, but this is the nature of the era that we're now in, and it's partly fueled by this realignment which is taking place, the uh, the reconfiguration of uh, world relations and global relations, which is uh, a product of the declining position of US imperialism and the rise of China and other powers. One of the interesting, one of the, one of the symptoms that we've seen just this week, it was announced in fact that um, huge changes taking place in Africa, as you mentioned. Three of the countries where there's been coups recently, Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, uh, it's just been announced by the juntas in those countries that they're uh, withdrawing from the regional bloc ECOWAS. Uh, but it's an important realignment in that region. And it's along this same pivot because it's to do with the involvement of uh, Russian forces in the Sahel region, uh, the support of Russia for the, uh, the new regimes and so on, and a certain chipping away not a decisive overturn, but a chipping away at the status quo, which is, of course, favoured uh, the US and Western imperialism um, up to this up to this point. So in terms of the shifting regional balance of forces, of course, a key area uh, in the US-China background conflict, if you like, is the question of Taiwan, especially. Um, we've just had elections in Taiwan. What do we uh, make of those? Well, it's, it's, I mean, that is the next flashpoint. The whole issue of the Taiwan Straits and uh, China's position, Xi has, you know, allowed Putin has a clear political objective. He wants to reincorporate Taiwan back into mainland China. That's his, what's what he wants. He wants to do it in his lifetime. And I mean, they will probably attempt it. What you see now is really a Chinese policy of attempting to strangle Taiwan in terms of greater incursions and measures taken against them. You've had the elections which have taken place, and uh, it's an interesting uh, result. I mean, we should it's really a little bit of a blow to Western interests or Western imperialist interests in terms of what happened. I mean, the ruling party, the DPP, and his candidate for the presidency, like they, uh, only got about 40% of the vote which I mean, is enough to secure an election, but it is an indication it's not just a uniform position, it's a somewhat fragmented position taking place in Taiwan itself. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say the majority, you know, uh, it's all going to pan out in a very clear way of uh, people who voted against the government wanting to be reincorporated into China. It's more complicated than that. A layer probably do, but how many, you know, is, is another question. But nevertheless, it's a little bit of a blow because... The DPP was the most pro-Western, least friendly party in relation to re-establishing or developing relations to the Chinese regime uh, itself. So it's a little bit of a blow and it's, it's uh, going to intensify uh, issues. Whether it comes from a military occupation is more complicated for the Chinese regime because of the consequences. But China's facing its own economic problems. They, like Putin's whipped up Russian nationalism, the Xi regime in China will probably attempt, is attempting to do the same as well. And there is a shift uh, taking place. Number of countries are switched, smaller countries, and opted for closer relations with China and broken relations with Taiwan. There's about 10 in the last couple of years have done that and moved in that uh, particular direction. So they're exerting their pressure uh, on on it, and it's, uh, and it's uh, uh, you know definitely a flashpoint for future conflicts. And this tug of war between the 
being in the orbit of the U of US imperialism or the orbit of China isn't just pulling countries in different directions, but it's pulling the ruling classes in different countries apart. At the IEC meeting, the comrades from Sri Lanka, for example, explained how the upcoming presidential election, assuming it goes ahead, the different candidates are staking their claim either as pointing Sri Lanka towards China, towards the US, or even towards India, and this idea of a more non-aligned uh, bloc. Now, the, the, the sabre-rattling by Xi and his regime towards Taiwan can appear as if the Xi regime is full of confidence, acting from a position of strength, but our analysis would say it's more complicated than that. I mean, the Xi regime has, has a strong base, but it's not uh, unchallenged. It's not uh, um, in the sense of uh, completely stable, um, in the sense that you have a, a massive economic crisis and social crisis developing in China at the present time. Its population's fallen for the first time. They have a major problem in terms of uh, the demographics of the, of the country. But more importantly, in a sense, is the economic position. You have now had since the IEC, the official uh, declar declaration of bankruptcy of Evergreen, the major uh, uh, property company. China is on the brink of a major property implosion taking place. Whole swathes of the country, local councils and provincial councils are threatened with bankruptcy and are broke and uh, have massive debt uh, problems. You have tw over 25% unemployment amongst the youth. There is a massive social uh, crisis in the process of unfolding in relation to China. That will have implications for the, work, for the world economy itself, and that will be a crucial factor. The upheavals that are going to break in China are going to have an, a massive uh, global impact, the likes of which we've not seen uh, for a whole, uh, a peri whole period historically. How that develops politically is another question uh, and you know and it relates to the consciousness the political consciousness of the Chinese uh, masses who can move into struggle but it can move uh, just on demanding democratic rights which we obviously will support in relation to uh, China but what illusions will exist on the other side you have uh, evident protests taking place by a new generation of youth of students who are looking back to Maoism as a, as a way of a developing society. In other words, they're looking more for some form of socialist uh, uh, position being applied. Now, uh, how that develops is, of course, something we have to see. But big social upheavals are posed in relation to China. That is going to have a massive effect. Now, this is having a critical effect because what you raised there and touched upon about the realignments you saw with the Ukraine war and now with uh, the Gaza war, as a rough rule of thumb, sort of a tendency emerging of blocks crystallized in one form or another around China, to an extent Russia and uh, the neo-colonial world. Africa's a bit of somewhat of a different uh, situation. Um, uh, it's a bit more complicated there as we explained at the IEC. Uh, but against Western US imperialism. And we should not underestimate, because of what's happened economically, the devastating position in the neo-colonial world which has taken place, uh, economically, the social uh, conditions, the, the, the anger against Western imperialism is, is palpable in, in many countries uh, now. And it's, uh, it's, it's harnessed in its war. Now, around the war, it's reflected in relation to the war. The very fact that South Africa went to the International Court of Justice, and we have no illusions in the International Court of Justice, but it reflects something in terms of the pressure 
that uh, is there. They've used it cynically for their own advantage, the Ramaphosa regime in uh, South Africa. Election year in South Africa, of course. Uh, elections in South Africa, of course, coming up. So they'll use it to try and demonstrate, in inverted commas, their radical uh, uh, credentials as being anti-imperialist and, and what have you, supporting the Gaza people, which is a big issue in relation to South Africa because the affinity with the Palestinian people because of the struggle against the apartheid, um, and uh, which you have practiced in the West Bank in Israel. In Israel's an apartheid regime you have also within the, um, within the Netanyahu regime itself. Now, of course, within all of that is the question of the emergence of different blocks but they're not stable blocks, they're not stable alliances, they're very unstable and fluid in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the position that they find themselves in. And a crucial question that we have to also address is the fact for the, for the masses in these countries and the need for a revolutionary socialist alternative program to be presented. And that would mean in concretely in relation to the Gaza, defending the rights of the Palestinian peoples, also defending the right of the Israeli working people as well to win them away from supporting uh, this this uh, current regime, which would mean a, so a socialist confederation of the area and of defending the democratic national rights of the Palestinian peoples and the Israeli working class as well uh, to find a socialist uh, solution to, the, to, to this crisis. And really that's where we should finish this discussion is... On the, on the possibility of organisation, uh, the working class, the youth and the poor fighting back and building an alternative. I mean, in just the last week, we've seen mass protests uh, in Germany against the far right uh, alternative for Germany, alter, uh, alternative for Deutschland uh, there. We've seen one of the biggest strikes ever in Northern Ireland, in which we should add CWI comrades have played not only a key, but a leading role. Protests against the Gaza war have continued in a number of, uh, of countries. And of course, these are just the events of the last few weeks. Over the last few years, months and years, we've seen uh, uprisings, mass protests in a whole number of countries, including countries where the CWI has a base, Sri Lanka and Chile uh, spring to mind. And one of the things we've drawn out uh, and uh, put forward in our discussions is that none of the issues that led to these uh, revolts have been resolved. So the possibility of more explosions. I mean, I think that's absolutely inevitable. I mean, we have seen since 2018, you had a series of what we explained was multiple uprisings took place, Chile, Sri Lanka, uh, Myanmar, uh, there was a whole series, Ecuador, uh, Lebanon, uh, you know, a whole series of mass movements uh, broke out and, and, and took place. But because of lack of organization, because of a lack of a, of a socialist program and alternative, the uprisings that took place were not taken to their full conclusion. And it has allowed the ruling class to restabilize the, the situation or regain control, really like that, they've not stabilized the situation to more regain control for a, a period. But they've not resolved any of the underlying uh, social and economic crisis that they, that, that they have. But it, it, it then has seen all of these international effects are piling into these countries' domestic policy. You mentioned the, uh, the Sri Lankan elections, which are scheduled for later this year. Uh, and all of the major parties there are jockeying for positions. Either they're sponsored by India or they're sponsored by China. And there's a massive clash going on between them. And um, uh, it reflects 
how the international situation is impacting on the domestic uh, situation in a whole series of uh, uh, countries. Now, uh, that also means that what we'll see is because of the devastating economic position facing the neocolonial world, none of the social problems have been uh, resolved in any of these countries, and further uprisings and social explosions are absolutely inevitable. Uh, and Sri Lanka is a prime candidate maybe even during this year, in the run-up to election uh, situation. Ditto with Chile uh, and, and uh, some other countries as well. And we should say it's not all been one-sided in terms of the international position. In Myanmar, where you saw that movement and then the brutal clampdown of the military, there was a fight back taking place. And now the military's on the back heel, or they're being pushed back. They've been defeated in some areas. There's thousands of defections have taken place from uh, the ranks of the army. And we'll have to see how that goes on, but it's not excluded that you could see the defeat of the Myanmar uh, uh, dictatorship. We often talk about the whip of counter-revolution and the instability of the capitalist system, of capitalist political rule. We should add as well that the right populist regimes that we've uh, discussed earlier are also inherently unstable. The question of working class organization, question of working class political program, and for us, that means fighting for mass working class organisation and a socialist programme as the only answer to the crisis of capitalism. And that, that's, you see, that's the central point and it's a central challenge which the movement faces. Because we should stress, you know, the discussion we're having today, where you've seen the coming to power these uh, right wing populist forces, then it doesn't mean they're on a solid, stable base. I mean, take the example of Argentina. Melee's come to power. Uh, is announced a, uh, as um, uh, a neoliberal package, which was Margaret Thatcher on steroids, and then just privatised everything. Out of eighteen government departments, he shut down nine. I mean, it's just a, it's just a, a brutal assault. But within a matter of weeks of him being in power, he's confronted the first general strike. Hundreds of thousands defied the new repressive legislation, and they're on the streets. So don't imagine, we shouldn't imagine that these regimes, when they come to power, that's the end of the story, that they're stable. It doesn't mean that at all. It can trigger massive backlashes, but the key is the issue of what alternative uh, is going to be posed, because it, uh, that's the central issue. And we're faced as Marxists, as the Committee for Workers International is, as a revolutionary socialist organization, we're faced with an unprecedented position. The working class movement and the socialist movement has never faced a situation of such a deep crisis of global capitalism. And at the same time, the absence of large, substantial, even or mass, ideally, parties of the working class that even defend the idea of socialism and a new society. Now, that's not been present and the movement's never faced this situation uh, unless you go back right to its very in inception. Now, we're seeing struggles take place. The strike wave we've seen in Europe, we come on to another program maybe to discuss developments uh, in Europe. We've seen strikes uh, that have taken place in the United States, which are very symptomatic and very important uh, uh, developments. There's the beginnings of a revival of the movement of the working class uh, in terms of industrial battles and struggles taking place in Germany, even since our, our meeting of the International Executive Committee, a series of strikes and industrial disputes have uh, taken place. That's posed in the situation of workers moving into struggle, but politically the need for an alternative is more urgent than ever. And that's why we propagate the idea, the need 
for the working class to organize itself independently with its own independent political parties to become a class for itself has been a crucial question of the hour, uh, which is an international phenomenon and is posed. And the issue of building new workers' parties to provide an alternative is then crucial. Now, of course, once the parties are established, then we're confident that at a certain stage they, uh, they will be. It may take a, a, little, a bit more time yet through a, a battle and experience for a new generation of workers to draw that conclusion that new parties are essential. Then the key question is, what program are they going to defend? Are they going to have a program to fundamentally break with capitalism and everything that's contained within that? Or, as we will have, some justifying the issue of compromising, of forming alliances with pro-capitalist parties. All of that will come up with new, par new parties when they're formed. But uh, that does not detract from the importance of building this uh, political alternative for the working class and ultimately is a step towards building mass revolutionary socialist parties, which is the only way to ensure that the crisis of capitalism is, uh, is, is overcome through... Uh, the carrying through the socialist revolution. Tony, I think that's the perfect place to leave this podcast. We've covered really just one of the discussions that we had at the IEC meeting. I think you mentioned just now that we're going to return in a future podcast to the question of Europe and go into more detail on uh, uh, on the situation there. Uh, we'll be joined by another comrade uh, uh, for that. If you go to the socialistworld.net website, there is a document that was adopted by the meeting of the IEC, fleshing out and ex uh, expanding on all the ideas that myself and Tony have been discussing today. We it wouldn't be right but to end with an appeal that if you've been interested in the ideas that you've listened to uh, today, that you join the CWI to fight for a socialist world. The Committee for Our Workers International is organized on every continent. If you would like to join us and get active building the CWI in your part of the world, please visit our website at socialistworld.net. Here you can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter and support our work by making a donation. If you have any questions or comments about that podcast, please let us know and we may try and respond in future episodes.